Good afternoon, church. Uh, my name is Joel McCarty. For those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm the pastor for preaching and oversight here. Um, I do want to encourage you, as we mentioned, um, to consider giving towards Blake and Rachel for our Advent giving. Um, that's just an exciting thing for us to be able to get behind. It's a long-term opportunity for us to engage um, the nations from right here in Decatur, Alabama and the surrounding areas. So I encourage you to do that. I did want to mention, if you do give here by cash or check, if you can just make sure to designate that either write their names, Blake and Rachel Witt, or on the check, um, you know, designate that in the memo line or put it in an envelope if it's cash and designate that so we know that it's going towards that. Um, as Kevin said, we're in our Advent series. Last week, Kevin uh, brought the Sermon on Hope, and it was good for my soul to hear it. Um, what we're doing is we're going through four different Psalms and looking at Advent from the Psalms through the four traditional themes, and we're going to see how those Psalms point us to those themes and ultimately to Jesus. So I've enjoyed the series already so far. Um, it's an exciting thing. I love this time of year because we get to really focus on the incarnation, which we shouldn't just remember the word made flesh only around Christmas, but around this time we can be intentional with it. Um, as Kevin mentioned last week, I don't know if you remember the word hope. Um, he kind of explain to us how the biblical definition of hope uh, is maybe different than what we understand in our cultural context. And I would even say somewhat the same thing about peace. There are certain words that the biblical definition maybe isn't fully embodied in our um, 21st century, almost a 20th century, 21st century mindset, right? Um, our passage today, we're talking about peace. Psalm 131 doesn't actually mention the word peace. I don't know if you noticed that, okay? Uh, it actually mentions the word hope, but we are talking about peace. What it does do though, is it uses some imagery to give us a picture or definition of peace, which sometimes can actually be better than using the actual word. Now, around Christmas, you might hear talk of peace a lot. You'll hear the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, right? You'll even sometimes feel like people are maybe more generous during this time of year, right? The spirit of the season. And so maybe people are more peaceful. Maybe you've even heard stories of enemy soldiers who paused the battle and ceased war for that day, and they even exchanged Christmas gifts with their enemies on December 25th. See, the idea of peace is something that every single one of us, whether we can communicate it or not, we long for it in the fabric of our souls. We want things to be right. We want things to be okay. We want conflict to cease. But if we're honest, none of us really know how to obtain it. It's been the human experiment for over 2,000, over eight, however many years, right? Trying to obtain peace and we've not yet found it. See, the reality is we can hear cool stories about enemy soldiers, you know, stopping battle for a day, but the next day, guess what they did? They picked back up their weapons and went and tried to kill the same people they exchanged Christmas gifts to the day before. We look around and see that peace is not always attainable and not just even out there, but in our own souls, right? in our own workplaces, in our own, the four walls of our home, even the places you're supposed to be able to control, we don't always experience peace. And that's just talking about peace as the absence of, absence of conflict. The biblical understanding or definition of peace includes more than just the absence of conflict, though it can include that. The biblical word for peace is shalom. And it also means the presence of cultivation and flourishing. It's not just the absence of the negative, it's also the presence of the positive, where all the working parts are in alignment. Shalom is often used in the Old Testament to describe 
a completeness. When King Solomon finished the temple or completed it, the word there is the same word we hear for peace, shalom. And so the idea is that things are where they are supposed to be. Things are doing what they're supposed to do. They have a purpose, they have a place, and things work as they're supposed to, as they're designed to. So right now, me and my wife, our home is the exact opposite of Shalom. Some of you yesterday helped us move into our new home, right? And so we're just moved yesterday. Some things are where they're supposed to be, but most things aren't, right? It's not Shalom. And so we're looking for things. We're trying to figure out where they are, what box they're in, right? And it's hard to rest in that environment. That's why if you've ever tried to rest in a messy house or a messy room, it's difficult because you know in your mind, even if physically you have nothing bothering you, in your mind, you're like, I can't rest with all this going on. Now, maybe some of you can, and you're gifted with that. You know, I just hit this point where I'm like, ah, I got to clean this up. You know, I can't rest. And so we'll just try to clean up one room or maybe you shove it under the bed. So it at least looks like it's clean. Right. Because that's what we're talking about when things are in their place, in their proper order. And this is what the author of our psalm is seeking to describe. We're told in the header to this psalm that it's a song of ascent. So I'm not going to revisit that. Kevin mentioned that last week. But we're also told that King David is the one who authored this song. We actually have the author of our poem or song today. And as we just heard read, he's talking to God. He uses some imagery to describe this state of shalom. Now, I want to make clear, it doesn't mean that David always felt this way. But I think in this moment, he's being honest with God that in this moment, this is how he feels. He is at peace with God and the world around him. He is at rest. He uses the word of calm and this idea of quiet and his soul is still. And it's this beautiful poetic picture. And the imagery he uses to describe this state of shalom is that of a weaned child. Now, some of you might get this imagery just by me saying, wean child, you understand what he's going after. Some of you might not. So I think it's good for us to tease it out a little bit. So when children are born, especially before the days of formula, okay, but even still many times now, they are completely dependent upon the milk that their mother produces to sustain them. And so one of the first thing the child learns is that I go to my mom when I need to be sustained or to be filled. And so they know that that is why their mom is there. They learn that if they're hungry, the mom has the food. And to the point that often, if the baby is around the mother, even if it's not feeding time, the baby is clamoring to be fed because it's learned and it's trained to know that the mother brings the food. And so it cries for that from its mom. And if you've ever been around in those moments where the baby's not getting that, there's no peace or shalom for anybody in the surrounding area, right? We have four kids. We understand that. Kids are trying to get what they want, and you're like, this is not peaceful at all, right? But what happens is when a baby gets to a certain age, the mother begins to wean the child off of breast milk and move on to more solid foods. Now, some mothers choose to do that at different ages than others, but this is what we mean by weaning, that process of weaning them off of that breast milk, okay? And some of you might have used weaning in a different instance. Like, for example, a few years ago, I decided I was going to drink black coffee. I was sick of being shamed by people who drank black coffee. I'm not going to mention any names, um, but people who only drink black coffee. But I will say, I listened to them. And what I did is I weaned myself off of coffee over about a six-month period. I put a little bit less creamer and sugar every time I drank coffee. And now all I ever drink black coffee. And now I'm that guy that's shaming other people. Like, I promise, drink the black coffee. You'll like it better. Um, and you'll never drink Folgers again. So no offense to those of you who drink Folgers. 
I bet you put a bunch of cream in yours too. Um, <laughs> no, because I weaned myself off of that, right? But for a baby, that's a difficult time because things are changing and they have to learn that. They expect that when they are with their mother, and you need to see this analogy because this is what David uses. They expect that when they're with their mother, they're going to get what they want. They're going to be fed. And so they have to learn over time that there's much more value to the relationship that their mother brings than just feeding them milk. They have to learn that sitting with their mother has value in and of itself. That the mother brings them peace even when their physical need in their mind seemingly isn't being met the way they expected it to. And they eventually, like the child that David describes, learn to love their mother for who she is, not just what she can give the child. And so a weaned child has walked through this process. And the picture here is of this child that can sit with its mother and not clamor and not beg and not whine and not complain, but simply rest and be still because it is in the arms of his or her mother. And David says, that is what my soul is like. So we're going to look at that imagery a little bit more later. But what I want to say up front is, do we actually think that's possible? Or like in a world full of chaos, in a world full of distraction, is that kind of peace actually possible? Because if we're honest, through the ups and downs of life, through the difficulties we face, how often can you say that your soul is like a weaned child? Is that how our soul really feels that we're calmed and quiet before God and the world? And if I'm honest, that's not my most common state. We know conflict and the absence of pieces in the world, but even in our own souls, my soul would be more accurately described as hurried, scattered, busy, and distracted, which is the opposite of what we see here. So how do we get there? How do we move from distracted and busy and, and maybe the picture of the child who's discontent and doesn't get its way and is just screaming and crying? How do we move from that to the child who is sitting still in its mother's lap? So today, we're going to simply walk through the text, and hopefully we'll leave with the healthy understanding of what shalom is, how we go about for that to be in our soul, and what does Christmas, the birth of Jesus, have to do with any of this? So I'm going to just quickly explain the passage here. There's only three verses. Verse 1, David starts his prayer to God, and he just shares honestly how he feels about his standing before God. And then verse two, he's still in conversation with God. And he gives us this imagery that you just heard read of a weaned child with its mother. And then verse three, he's gonna move from talking to God and this prayer to then talking and imploring Israel to hope in the Lord. So let's look right away at the first half of verse one. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. So David tells Yahweh, he says, God, I, my heart's not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. Now, this is a way of David simply saying that his heart is not proud and his eyes are not haughty. Lifted up or raised too high was a common metaphor of describing people who were prideful, right? Describing pride. It's, we have our own metaphors today, right? She or he needs to get off his or her high horse. Right, that's the way we say they're too prideful or, or their head's too big. They can't even fit through the door because they've got a big head. So that's a way we say prideful. And this is the same thing here in the ESV. The CSB translation says it plain and says, Lord, my heart is not proud. That's on the screen. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. 
So if we read this, it can actually seem a little funny if you think about it. I don't know if any of you have tried this, but if you were to meet just a, a group of new people and they were like, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're like, well, well let me tell you up front, I'm, I'm not a proud person. Uh, I'm not arrogant at all. I'm not haughty. I'm, I'm very humble. Um, if you started your conversation that way, most of you, most everybody would assume the exact opposite of that person, right? Like that's normally how it would go. Um, I don't think that's what's going on here. One, he's talking to God, just not other humans, okay? Um, and we'll see more what I think he's after. But we also need to see it's not the kind of false humility that a lot of us find ourselves engaged in, right? A lot of us kind of feign humility because we know it can be an attractive character trait. Um, I caught myself a few years ago telling my wife this about some, some situation that happened. And I said, man, I just, I hate it. I think I really came across as arrogant. And I was like so bothered that I came across as arrogant and not even bothered that I might've actually been arrogant. Or like I was more bothered that the person thought I was arrogant than the fact that maybe you were actually just arrogant in that situation, right? And so we don't like to come across as arrogant or prideful because we know that can turn people off, but that might still be in our souls. I, I don't think that's what David's doing here. I don't think he's trying to just um, have some fake humility. I don't think he's trying to convince himself that he's humble. You know, like we'll try to do sometimes I really think this is David simply being honest. This is the same man that had written multiple times that he knew God knew his heart. He has no need to put on the mask before the creator of the universe. He's simply confessing to God what he knows to be true. God throughout the life of David had brought him to a point where he could honestly say, you know what, God, I'm not that great. I don't have it all together. I don't have it all figured out. I don't think I always know best, especially when I'm communing with you, standing in your presence, God, I have no room to boast. Like, I'm, I'm pretty honest. I, I see it pretty clearly through your point of view. Gazing into the face of Yahweh, communing with him as David did often, brought him to this reality. The point here wasn't for David to pretend that he wasn't being used by God. I mean, he was the king of Israel, that God put him in that place. But this was David recognizing that he had nothing to do with that role other than the goodness and grace of Yahweh. Everything David had done or accomplished in his life was simply a gift from the father. He took him from sheep herding, the least of these, to this place as the king and through which the lineage Jesus would be born. Later, Paul appealed to this, the Corinthians the Corinthian church with the same logic. They were lifted up in pride. And so he brings them in humility and he tells them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Like, can we fathom that? There's nothing you have that's not been given to you. Any talents, any treasure, any gifts, like it's been given to you. So where is your boast? How can you boast about it? This was not only true of David, it was not only true of the Corinthians, it's true of us. And so what we need to see is that the first step to peace, the first step to sitting like a weaned child in the lap of our true parents is humility. It's recognizing who we are and recognizing who God is. We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast in. We are from dust and to dust we will return. Our life is simply a vapor that appears for a little time and then poof, it's gone, it vanishes away. And so for us to put on pretense, for us to boast, for us to raise our heart and lift our eyes toward the applause of men is foolish. The only thing we have to lift our, lift our eyes to is the cross of Christ. 
Paul later said that in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't need the applause of the world. I don't need to put on pretense before the world. I am crucified to the world and I have the cross of Christ and that's all I have to boast in. Yes, every human has inherent value and worth and every human bears the image of its creator. We need to understand that. But ever since the fall, that image has become marred. And so what we do is instead of giving God praise, we want to steal the praise of man. We clamor to receive cheap imitations of the glory that is due Yahweh alone. And it's all empty and it will not fill us. But when we recognize that we are nothing without God, but with him, we are sovereign. We are sons and daughters of the sovereign king. This is where we get to. This is where David had come to, like a weaned child sitting in his mother's laps, fully, think about this, fully dependent on the one who held him. Eyes not lifted up, heart not proud. He didn't do anything to be born. She didn't do anything to be born. She or he is simply sitting in the lap of his mother. And this contentment, this humility, this is the pathway to shalom or peace. This also led David to be able to say what he went on to say at the end of verse one. If we keep reading, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So David moves from talking about his humility to confessing to God that he doesn't know, he knows his place, excuse me, he knows his place. He knows what he is to be concerned with and what he's not meant to be concerned with. He trusts that his father knows best. He knew because of his humility, he moves from there to trust. And this can be hard, especially when we're the one asked to trust. When we don't understand how the father is working, it's hard for us to trust. And maybe we get a glimpse into it if we can flip the roles a little bit, right? Maybe you've been there where you're training someone new on the job and they're asking questions about equipment or procedures or things. And like, you want to explain it to them, but like they need to be on the job for six months before they could even begin to understand why you do something a certain way or why that machinery operates this way. Like, so you try to explain it to them, but you're like, I just need you to trust me. Like, this is the process. We're going to get there, right? We do that with kids. Sometimes kids ask you questions and I'm like, I don't know, like, how do I describe this concept to you? Uh, you know, I can use this word. And they're like, what does that word mean? I'm like, I don't know. It means what it means. Like, I, I, it's hard to explain. Like, there's not another word to define it, right? Explaining algebra to a kid isn't helpful. You have to start with two plus two, and then we'll get there, right? And I've been in the position where I've questioned either parents or coaches or teachers, pastors, some level of authority. And then when I've been on the other side, like, I'll literally remember like 20 years ago thinking, wow, they were right. Like, it'll just dawn on me. Like, I, I see where they were coming from. Like, I understand where they were coming from. But in the moment, I couldn't understand. And oftentimes with God, we're like the kid begging him to show us why things happen the way they do or why we can't do it our own way. And the reality is we don't have all the information. We don't have all the knowledge. We can't see all the pieces of the puzzle. And we spend an incredible amount of energy occupying ourselves with things much too marvelous or great for our minds to comprehend. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't apply logic and effort, 
in the areas that God has given us to oversee, the areas he's called you to engage in. 100% occupy yourself with being a parent or with being a spouse or with being a single person, using their life for the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, your stage, occupy yourself with that in a healthy way, but don't occupy yourself with God's role because you're just going to wear yourself out. The areas that are out of our control, we can grow anxious, lose sleep over them. And this is where I'll find myself sometimes, right? There's times where, you know, it's hard to sleep and sometimes it's just a physical thing. But when I know that I'm occupying myself with things much too marvelous for me or when I'm not laying there and just trying to go back to sleep and the kids run in the room and wake us up or something and I slowly doze back off to sleep, it's when I lie awake sometimes for an hour or two and my mind is just racing over the million things going on in our life that I'm feeling like I could control or I wish I could control. Maybe it's the activities our kids are engaged in. So I'm thinking about sports or school, right? Maybe the, our church building situation, or maybe some conflict that happened with extended family, right? And I can lie awake at night, occupy myself with the situation, how it's going to turn out, or I wish something different could have been done. And in those moments, when it's completely out of our control, when there's nothing you can do, when we do that, we're trying to become God. We're wishing, we're not content with our role. We're not content to not have all the control and not have all the information. We want to be able to make the decisions. We want to orchestrate the future and control it. And that never goes well for humans. They just read the Bible. And David says here, he simply learned to trust. And just a practical thing, this is just a side note that I've, I've learned to do in those moments where I find myself overly occupied with the situation is to just pause when the spirit brings that to mind and I just stop and I just asked the spirit, I said, hey, what are, you, are you calling me to do something here? Is there a next step to walk through with this situation? And most of the time there's not. And when he tells me that, when he reveals that to me, I, I try to surrender the situation to him and say, all right, if there's nothing more for me to do, it is in your hands and I trust you with it. Let me know if I need to get back involved, right? And then if he calls me to a next step, I ask him for the courage to obey that. I don't do that perfectly but hopefully as we do that, as we ask those questions, we learn like a weaned child, we're trained to surrender to our father, to just sit in his lap and let him handle the things that we can't understand. We actually begin to be truly human. We let God be God and we're content with being human. And it flows from this posture of humility. Again, this doesn't mean we beat ourselves up. That's not what humility is. Just beating yourself up. Or it doesn't, it doesn't mean to pretend we're not gifted in the areas that we are or we're not called to the things that we're called to. It simply means that we are level. We are not too high. We are not too low. We are, we are simply human. We are who we were made to be. We are in shalom. We are operating in the lane that God has called us to be, not trying to be something we're not. When I read this language of occupying oneself with things too wonderful, for oneself. What came to mind was the story of Job. And I'm not going to go into the whole story of Job. You'd have to do a whole sermon series on that. I'm not trying to get into a theology of suffering. We could do that another time. But Job had spent some time questioning God. Understandably so, I think any of us would have. But what I love is God responded to Job, not answering all the questions that he had asked. Because Job was just frustrated. He was upset. I get it. So he, he's just asking a bunch of questions. He's challenging God. And God, in his grace, answers the question that Job should have been asking. See, Job wanted to know why. Job wanted to understand, and he thought maybe that would make the suffering better. 
But God doesn't try to explain the big picture to Job because he knows that Job's can't, Job can't fathom. He couldn't even understand the big picture that God was doing. And so what does God do? In his grace, he simply meets Job where he is and he shows him himself. God shows Job himself. He spends about four chapters. They're incredible chapters. 38, 39, 40, and 41, I believe, in Job. Just reminding Job of his power and might. Where were you? Were you there, Job? When I laid the foundations of the earth, were you there? When I spoke life into existence, were you there? When I carved out the oceans with my hands? And Job even says like, all right, all right, God. And then goes, God goes for like two more chapters. Job's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. And God's like, no, like I'm revealing myself to you. And in the end, look at Job 42, verse three on the screen. I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, now that you've revealed yourself to me, my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this repentance is a grace. See, the answer to pride is not trying to beat yourself up and make yourself just have really low self-esteem. The answer to pride is to look to the majesty and glory and goodness of God. Job says, I heard about you. I kind of had some knowledge about you, but now I'm starting to actually see it. And when I do, I say, oh my gosh, that's too wonderful for me. I'm just content to commune with you. Job had no right to even be answered by the creator of the universe. He had no right, but God knelt down and answered him. And for Job, that was enough. He did not have to have the situation turn immediately when he looked up from his conversation with God, the suffering was still there. Now God did take care of it and he ultimately is going to end all suffering and that's the hope we're gonna get to. But in the moment, he simply saw the sovereignty and goodness of God and he became at rest and at trust. God doesn't even ask you to agree with everything he does. He asks you to trust him. That's what he describes in verse two. This is what the psalmist had got to, a place of humility and trust. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You think about this child. The world is still chaotic around. There's still dangers around. There's still the danger of not being fed, but the child in the arms of his or her mother is at complete shalom. David uses this imagery. And this is way better than the rat race of the chaotic world where we want to be in control. The weaning doesn't happen overnight. It's a training. It takes time. David didn't get there immediately. This is something we have to learn. We have to be trained. Wean children don't get there on day one. They learn through much fighting and tears and sleepless nights for both mom and child, kicking and screaming, trying to do it their own way. But when we finally just stop and surrender and learn his way as best, we experience peace. And instead of clamoring for our next meal or clamoring to understand things too great for us, we simply trust. It's interesting too, this imagery can be helpful to see what true humility and trust is like. It's like sitting in the arms of his mother. And so if that's to be humble and full of trust, well then to be prideful, to have to have control means we're acting like a screaming, whiny baby. 
Right? That's the inverse of this, right? Josh Moody in his book, Journey to Joy, which is about the Psalms of Ascent, he points this out. He says, hey, the next time someone comes to you and says, man, I'm really struggling with pride, you should try saying, hey, stop acting like a whiny baby and see how they respond, right? It wouldn't go that well. And I don't think we've ever, we've looked enough at the link between contentment and humility and just trusting. He points out in his book too that it's easy for us to associate pride as almost a virtue because someone would only struggle with pride if they had a lot to be prideful about. It's like, you know, we can say we're struggling with pride because it means we've got some things to be prideful about. I mean, only, you know, the talented, the good looking, the successful, those who've accomplished a lot would struggle with pride. But I think a better picture for us of one who's struggling with pride would not be a successful person, but rather a screaming baby who's whining and begging to get his or her own way because I don't like the situation I'm in. And it's actually a little sobering when we think about it in the light David describes it. To be humble is to trust. To be at peace is to be content with what we've been given. And so we've got some great advice from David. We've got some very helpful imagery. And so let's just go apply it, right? I want you to go be really humble, okay? Don't be anxious. Don't try to control things and be like a weaned child. All right. Now, some of you might've tried that. I've tried it before. I'm just not going to get angry with my kids. It's not going to happen. And I'm like, I'm angry, but I'm at least not showing it right. Like that's better or something. See, if we just stop there, we can try, but it's not going to make our hearts more peaceful. Even if on the outside, we can put that mask on, we can finally control it. The reality is if we're honest, we can't stand before God and say, my soul is like a weaned child. And so what does David end with in verse three? I love it. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He turns from talking to God to then imploring Israel to look to God. Now you would think the natural flow of the passage would David turn and say, hey, look to me, right? I'm this model. I'm the one that my soul is like a weaned child. Look to me so you can be at peace like me. But he doesn't because he knows that the pathway to peace is humility and trust, but the pathway to humility and trust is not looking at oneself, but rather looking to God. And that's why our cry here every time is look to Jesus. That's all we have to offer you, but it's enough. That is why Christmas matters. This is why the advent or the arrival of Jesus matters, and it's what it has to do with peace. See, just like Job, when we're walking through chaos or suffering or conflict, when our soul is scattered and distracted, we can hear about God all day. We can read the Bible. We can hear some podcast and get helpful tips about trust and humility, but we need something more. Like Job, we need to really see God and experience him. And this is why Jesus was born. And this is why Christmas happened. And this is why it is good news. Because the whole purpose of the incarnation, God in flesh, the coming of the Messiah was so God would burst into this chaotic, distracted, fractured world and reveal himself up into your face as the only way to peace. So big that you can't miss it. It's the grace when we see him that trains us to trust him. And we know we can trust him because we know he's good. He came to show us himself. He didn't have to. 
And it's even more clear than Job got because we see it in the face of a sleeping baby born God in flesh. That's what John tells us when he starts his gospel. John 1.18, no one's ever really seen God. No one's seen God. We've got glimpses of his glory, but the unique one, Jesus, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. In the face of Jesus, we get a glimpse. We get the shining full glory, not just a glimpse of God himself. Came in flesh as a baby to reveal himself to us, and he came to bring ultimate peace. And when we see his goodness, when we see that he gave up heaven's throne to come to us, it trains us to trust him. When we see that goodness, what are the responses there to just, then to just sit in his lap? And there's hope. Even when we kick and scream, even when we rebel, because Jesus was the one who ultimately trusted his father on our behalf. Think about the trust of Jesus. I mean, think about it. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke life at creation, the one who described himself to Job as this magnificent God who carved out oceans with his hands. This God became confined in time and place in the flesh of a crying infant. Talk about dependence. Talk about trust. Talk about faith. And he did this all on our behalf. He did it to save a bunch of screaming babies who want their own way, not realizing that it leads to destruction. And so he came to put an end to sin and death and chaos. As we mentioned, we often think peace is only the absence of conflict, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes conflict is necessary on the way to peace. And this is actually what the birth of Jesus was. The birth of Jesus was a declaration of war on sin and death and the grave and on the selfishness in our own hearts. And so in a world full of chaos, in a world full of everyone clamoring for their own way, in a world full of disruptions, the son of God was born to disrupt disruption, to rescue rebel hearts, to embarrass shame and to put to confusion the chaos that the enemy had created. That's why this baby boy eventually grew up and he willingly allowed himself to be crucified. The same trust that he had in the cradle, he had on the cross when he said with his last breath, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm trusting you. It doesn't look good. It's bleak. He's had the same trust in the garden. Not your will but thine be done. I trust you. I don't know what it's going to turn out. I mean, he did in his deity, but in his humanity, he's fully trusting him like a weaned child with his mother. Because he knew the father was going to use his death to beat death. When he was stripped naked and embarrassed and spit on and mocked, he knew that when that was happening, he trusted his father to use that to embarrass shame forever. And to put it into our shame that we try to mask and cover with our arrogance. And he brought peace by becoming a curse for us. Tearing down the wall of division. Reconciling all of creation, including those that trust him, up into himself. He brings us to shalom. But here's the thing. Unlike what would have happened if we tried to go to war against sin and death, Jesus won. 
He got back up out of the grave. He is the conquering king of kings. And he put the entire government of the world on his shoulders because he can handle it. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And this is our hope. His birth was the first sound of the final battle cry against sin and death and chaos. And his death and resurrection was the beginning of the first victory blow, the first victory cry. And here's the hope we have in between the two advents, the first arrival of Jesus. And the last one is that he's going to come back to finish what he started. And we know he's going to do it because he did it the first time and he's going to do it again. Luke 2, when the angels declared the birth of Jesus, they said, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, everyone for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. All those who have received the shalom and righteousness of Jesus, there is peace. The birth of Jesus says peace is actually possible for all people. You just have to look in the right place. You can't look to things of this age. You can't look to yourself. Look to the person and work of Jesus. God made low. And this good news is the power or the engine to bring real peace. And not only now, but forever. And this is the thing. This isn't trite or cliche. This isn't just gloss over brokenness and suffering. No one's saying that. No one's saying to pretend that suffering doesn't exist. But this hope, this hope for peace is rooted in reality. Because of Jesus, we can learn to simply sit at peace with him. Not because everything's perfect, not because there's not suffering, but we know that Jesus is sitting there with us in it. Like a weaned child, we're just glad to be sitting in his lap. And when that happens, we become peacemakers. We become displaying to the world what Jesus did for us. We forgive when we are wronged. We speak truth when needed, but always from love. We don't lash out at others in anger or fear because we got to control the situation because we're scared ourselves, right? I mean, I find me doing that with my kids all the time. I've got to control them. So I lash out at them. When we do that, we walk in repentance and humility because we don't have to put the mask on. It's about Jesus. It's not about you being perfect. And when he weans us, we get to humility, trust, peace. We're filled with the fruit of the spirit. And as we do this together as New Eden, as a community, this is my prayer for us, that we become a place of shalom, a place where people who are hurt, a place where people who are broken, a place for hearts that are scattered to simply be and rest and sit because we're all just sitting in the lap of Jesus. That's all we have to offer. It was funny this week as I was planning for this sermon I, I might be exaggerating. I don't know. It might be one of the most chaotic weeks of my life. It's just been insane, right? We're moving. There's a lot of stuff going on with New Eden. Um, just a lot of stuff I'd hoped to had it planned to where Kevin was preaching on the week we were moving and it didn't pan out that way like it was supposed to. And so just all these things, there's a lot of unknowns up in the air. There was conflict. Me and my wife were stressed. So we're arguing with each other, you know, every now and then we'll do that. So there's conflict there. There's conflict around us, you know, all this stuff going on. And we're just like, Oh my gosh, it's crazy and chaotic. But it was really cool because just, I mean, the way that the timing of this, you know, and God's sovereign, but the spirit just met me so many times and just granted me peace and, and just reminding me that he came, he's, he's gonna put an end to all this suffering and this chaos. 
and it, it, it breaks my heart and softens me and makes me moldable and just sit and trust. He's going to fix it all. So we groan, yes. We lament, yes. Our hearts cry out that it's not as it's supposed to be, but Christmas gives us true hope for true peace. See, the arrival of Jesus is not good news for those who have it all together, for those who never lose their temper, for those who are perfectly under control, for those who are well and have no need for a physician. The arrival of Jesus is good news for the weary, the distracted, the overly controlling, fearful, busy person who's willing to simply surrender and sit in the lap of their father and he stands with arms ready to receive you.